Who are you? What are you doing here? My name is Nick Rivers. Who are you? I am Dr. Paul Flamond. I am a prisoner here just like you, my son. You see, a year ago, I was close to perfecting the first magnetic desalinization process. So revolutionary. It was capable of removing the salt from over 500 million gallons of seawater a day. Do you realize what that could mean to the starving nations of the Earth? Wow. They'd have enough salt to last forever. But then one night, the secret police broke into my house. They tore me from my family, ransacked my laboratory, and brought me to this dungeon. That sucks. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love her. And it's time for Kill McCast. Yeah, it's time for Kill McCast. Welcome to Kill McCast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thank you, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val Pals listening out there to a new episode of KilmerCast. I'm your host, Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly intriguing American film actors of our modern era. On this episode, we'll be digging into the, his feature film debut, 1984's Top Secret, with an exclamation point. And joining us today to do that is an intriguing American in his own right, film critic, fellow DVD Talk alum, and S-tier Shrek aficionado, Tyler Foster. How are you doing today, Tyler? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. How's everything out in Seattle? Uh, pretty good. I mean, uh, we got a good governor, so he's been sticking to the caution. And uh, so far, it's been okay. We'll see what happens in the next few weeks, but um, I'm feeling pretty okay so far. Great. Yeah, it's nice to have a governor who seems to be in control of things and cares about the people that they actually govern, which is nice. Uh, you know, I know we're in separate packs. You're in that Western state pact, and we're in the Upper New England, whatever it's called, pack, but we kind of need to join forces over the middle here. So um, before we dig in on Top Secret, uh, we've got to check in uh, and find out what's going on on the Kilmer News Network and get the latest scoop on Val Kilmer. Let's find out the latest from the Kilmer News Network. So uh, from Yahoo's Kevin Palawi, um, he chatted with Yorma Tacone and Will Forte about MacGruber, which is going to be returning as a TV series. And they discussed the scene Val Kilmer refused to do in the movie. Uh, throughout the film, uh, as you, I'm sure you remember, Tyler, you're, you enjoy MacGruber. Um, yes. MacGruber threatened Von Kunt, which is what Kilmer played, um, that he's going to castrate him and then shove his dick in his mouth. And that's exactly what Tacone, uh, Forte, and writer John Solomon wanted to do. And Kilmer refused to do. Um, so, Norma Tacone said, we wanted to shove the dick right in his mouth. We pitched it so many times. I tried to tell him, it'll be beautifully shot. Dick's going to come off. It's going to go up in the air. The sun will be behind it. It's going to be in silhouette. Just really beautifully shot. And then it'll go right in your mouth. And Kilmer's like, let me stop you right there. I mean, I don't know if you had to see that in the movie, but I don't know what you think, Tyler, about that. I feel both ways about it. I feel like the way the, mo jo mo the movie plays the joke where it's like uh, – Spoilers alert, but I mean, I'm sure if you're listening to the podcast, you've seen the movie, he cuts his own dick off and then he pre he prevents that from being possible. So I think that's also a very funny alternative solution because he wouldn't let them do the joke. Um, and I'm sure that uh, whatever I'm picturing, I mean, they're very funny people. So I'm sure the joke would have been funny if I had seen it in the movie, but I feel both ways. I feel like the movie has a good joke now and that that was also potentially a good joke. Yeah, I think when you're talking about uh, dicks and comedy, it's hard to question the guy behind Popstar. You know, he really <laughs> understands how to how to use those two things together for uh, maximum effect. Uh, that limo scene was something else. <laughs> I was also going to point out that uh, when you brought this up, because I think you quoted the piece, the, of the two pieces, I think you quoted the one that I liked more, but there was actually, because it's the 10th anniversary of MacGruber, there's actually two oral histories of MacGruber. There's one in The Ringer, which I think is the one you're quoting, and there's one in Vanity Fair, and both of them, I mean, I did think The Ringer one was a little better, but the, the one in Vanity Fair ends with these incredible... Um, parts about Christopher Nolan and stuff. And um, there was actually another little edition from Val where he was, he 
apparently did not know the movie had become a cult classic. Uh, that was only in the Vanity Fair piece where he's like, I had no idea. That's wonderful. So I thought that was kind of funny. That certainly seems Kilmer-esque, you know, for him to not understand that, that that's happening around him. But I did, I did like the, in the Vanity Fair piece, um, near the end, uh, and I don't, I'm not going to, I don't have it in front of me. I'm not going to read it. You should go find it and read it yourself if you're listening to this. But um, Tacone talks about having, because Christopher Nolan's a huge fan of MacGruber. And he got, he, he emailed Christopher Nolan trying to invite him to one of the table reads for the TV show. And Nolan sent him an email back and it's the fun, one of the funniest things that I've ever read. <laughs> so. uh, definitely. I read that and it's, it's so <laughs> Nolan, but it's so un-Nolan at the same time. <laughs> I did like the note in the Vanity Fair piece, in one of the pieces, I think it might have actually been the Ringer piece, where he said, well, he, he admitted to being a fan, but he declined to comment on what he thought was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got to keep his credibility, I guess. I understand. Whatever. <laughs> so uh, in other Kilmer news um, from SurvivorNet, uh, I'm going to get this name completely wrong, but it's uh, Laura Giswaldi Gilmore. And uh, she wrote about uh, Kilmer's response to the fan reaction to the recent New York Times magazine article, What Happened to Val Kilmer? He's just starting to figure it out. Uh, he expressed his appreciation on Instagram as readers wrote in to thank the writer and Kilmer for opening up in the piece in which uh, he talked about his cancer and the surgery uh, that he had and his faith as a Christian scientist. Um, did you read that article? That one I did not read. It's, it's, uh, it's really something else. Um, the uh, author really is right in the middle of it, but at the same time doesn't make herself the core subject. She really does focus on Kilmer. And he, you know, um, it, it doesn't matter what your opinion on faith or religion is. Um, I'm sure many people have, an, have a view on Christian scientists that's uh, not exactly positive because of the, uh, you know, the belief that they don't want to have surgery. They pray away illnesses and, and problems like that. Um, but when you read about how he uh, didn't want to have surgery and then his children asked him to have surgery to, you know, to save him, um, to be able to be so strong in your, your faith at the same time to care and be compassionate about how others around you feel uh, really is a positive thing. It really kind of, I think, speaks to why we, we enjoy Kilmer as, a, as an artist. It's that duality that he has. And uh, it's really a, a really quality article and some interesting photographs as well to go along with it. Also, I mean, you say that, you know, people, some people might not be as uh, forgiving of religion in these days. And I feel like it's, I mean, to listen to the people around you and understand that you can still have faith and not, not follow it completely, or you can do things for the people that mean something to you in your life um, that might go against one of those beliefs. I mean, I think that's probably that kind of flexibility would be at the heart of the reason why people would normally not like religion. So if you have that flexibility, I mean, that's probably a big step in terms of getting people to be comfortable with that. Yeah, it's definitely uh, one I, I recommend re everybody to read. It's, it's something else to hear his story and what he's gone through um, as, you know, he struggled with this cancer and it's really, it's robbed him of his ability to speak at this point, even though they talk about in the article about how he's, his training as an actor is helping him come back from that, which is amazing. I, I don't know how uh, somebody could be so strong to try to come back like that, uh, but mm -hmm. he's definitely doing it. So uh, now that we're up to date and all things Kilmer uh, in the world of news, uh, why don't we go back in time and uh, we'll place Kilmer in context. Gather round. As we put Kilmer in context. So um, Top Secret was released in uh, actually June 22nd, 1984. Uh, IMDb says it's June 8th, but I can't find any record of it being in theaters in, at that point. But I definitely found it in the box office reports on June 22nd, um, which not the most, um, you know, active time of history. Uh, I mean... There, you had some stuff like uh, New York State passed a law for to uh, require seatbelts in cars, which you know um, was resulted in a ton of ridiculous uh, you know debate, which uh, obviously we all are comfortable now with a ridiculous debate about things that we really should have. Um, and it also that time proved that history just keeps repeating itself uh, because the U.S. was uh, blaming China for international strife. Um, there was conflict in the Middle East. Uh, the Democratic National Committee uh, convention was uh, dealing with infighting about delegates and 
um, Congress was battling about immigration laws. So really, from 1984 to 2020, things have not changed very much at all. Um, in the world of entertainment, uh, Duran Duran, uh, their song, The Reflex, was number one. Number two is Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark and Prince's When Doves Cry was number three. It was quite a time for pop music at that time. On TV, the detective drama Cagney and Lacey was the number one show on TV with like something like 17 million people watching it each week, which is stunning to think about now with, you know, the fractured audience on television to get 17 million people. is just mind blowing to watch Cagney and Lacey. I mean, how many people know of Cagney and Lacey at this point? I mean, did you, do you know Cagney and Lacey? I mean, I've heard of Cagney and Lacey. I know what it is. Um, I haven't, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Cagney and Lacey, but I'm aware of the show. <laughs> yeah, I think most people's understanding of Cagney and Lacey comes from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the fact that those are uh, Jeffords kids' names. That's probably as close as most people understand it at this point. Uh, in the books um, on New York Times bestseller list, Danielle Steele's Full Circle was the number one fiction title, while uh, Bob Woodward's Wired, The Short Life and Fast Times of John Belushi was the nonfiction leader. Uh, so it uh, gives you kind of an idea of what was going on in the world at the time that Top Secret came out. But let's uh, look at the movies. You know, this is um, what I find interesting. Yeah, Tyler? I don't, I don't want to interject too much, but uh, I did, I mean, we, when you were uh, going over what we were going to talk about, you did talk about quizzing me on movies, and then you said Top Secret's rumored release date was June 8th, 1984. Wow. I wonder what could have come out on June 8th, 1984. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you'll get at least one of these titles right. I'm going <laughs> to guess you're going to get a lot of these titles right, because... Uh, you know, Top Secret didn't do well when it came out in theaters. Um, and that's not really a surprise when you look at what was in theaters at the time when it was released. It's, I mean, trying to imagine, I mean, yes, I was like, um, what was I, seven years old at the time uh, this movie came out. Um, so I wasn't going to theaters, obviously, uh, at least not by myself. And I wouldn't have known what was going on. And it's funny, as I look down the list of movies in theaters, there is nothing for kids really at that time. Um, so, um, but to, as an adult, if you, or a young adult or whatever, if you went to the theater at that time, you had no idea what an amazing array of films was in front of you that you could choose from. Obviously, most theaters were only four or five screens. Uh, you didn't have the giant multiplexes for the most part. Um, but God, you know, I was looking at the ads at the time uh, where you see like four or five movies and you're just like, wait, that was out and that was out and, and that was out also. Like, you know, if you imagine like if you had, well, it doesn't exist anymore, but MoviePass, if you had MoviePass at that time, you'd lose your mind because you just go from room to room take, watching these movies. So I'm going to ask you, I have a list of, I believe it's the top 14 films out that week. One of them is Top Secret, obviously. We're talking about Top Secret. And that one came in at number eight. Um, so in its first week, it was, didn't do so great. But can you name any of the other films that came out that week they were out that week in theaters uh well for the listeners who who don't already know me um the reason i made that joke is because one of my favorite movies of all time came out that year which is ghostbusters i'm like a huge ghostbusters fan and i know that june 8th 1984 is the day that movie came out because like every uh pop culture landmark these days they've christened the release date as um a day you know so um last year i went to uh, i traveled to culver city on ghostbusters day and they had a ghostbusters fan fest on the sony lot so i got to walk past the uh ghost corpse building and stuff like that and they had ivan reitman and dan Aykroyd and all those people there um i am not i'm not a release date um like, I don't know a lot of release dates off the top of my head. I do know release years. So I might also guess that Beverly Hills Cop was, might have been out. Not at that time. Because Beverly Hills Cop is 1984. I believe so, yes. Because I believe um, Beverly Hills Cop might have been the uh, one movie that overtook Ghostbusters in the overall year. Mm -hmm. um, what else would be out in 1984? I mean, this list is insane. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> um, uh, that That isn't... I think Temple of Doom was 83. So nope, it was, it was 84, and it was number three in the box office that weekend. Oh, nice. Huh, that's weird. Um, hmm. I'm not thinking of anything else off the top of my head. I'm looking at, I can see my 80s shelf over there. Predator is 87. Blues Brothers is 80. Um, E.T. is 82. If it was 82, I would have a lot of guesses. But 84... <laughs> Ghostbusters is sort of the, the big one for me. Well, 
Number two was Gremlins. Oh, yes. Gremlins was number two at the box office. Number four is a personal favorite of mine, but I, I don't know if it has, holds up as well now, but Breakin'. Breakin' mm. was number four. Uh, number five was Rhinestone, which opened that weekend, the uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone film. Number six, behind all those other films, The Karate Kid in its first weekend. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's, it's wild. Uh, after that, Star Trek Three, The Search for Spock. I mean, and then after, those, after Top Secret, Footloose. Footloose was out in theaters at that point, followed by 16 Candles. I mean, it's insane. Streets of Fire was right behind it. The Natural. And then Romancing the Stone. <laughs> and then Police Academy. I mean, that lineup is just wild. That's, that's some of the biggest films of the 80s in, that are in, one the, in theater in one weekend. The number of those uh, movies that are in this room with me right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to imagine, I, outside of Rhinestone, maybe, I, I'm pretty sure I have all of those in my collection. I will say that uh, to call Rhinestone, because it's, it's Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton, right? You yes. can't just call it a Sylvester Stallone movie. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to defame her by mentioning her in connection with it. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that, that might make sense. Um, yeah, that's, that's funny, because I guess... My instinct would have been to say that Beverly Hills Cop is a summer movie and that Gremlins is a Christmas movie. I mean, mm. uh, I didn't think of Gremlins, but it does feel like Gremlins, I would have expected Gremlins to come out later than later in the year. Yeah, and I, you know, my memory of Karate Kid is that it was huge, but its first weekend, it was only sixth. I mean, <laughs> I guess it had legs, obviously, you know, it, it survived uh, it, slow opening, but... Uh, that was definitely. the time when you could open in sixth and still end up being a huge hit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, now we have an idea of where Top Secret was coming from, uh, where, where it was released in. So let's talk a bit about the movie. I wanted to read you the description Paramount released for um, Airplane. And I mean Top Secret, sorry. I'm connect, mis, uh, communicating my Zazz films. Um, <laughs> so uh, from Paramount, if you were sitting around wondering if the guys who brought you Airplane and the Naked Gun are crazy, the answer is yes. And Top Secret proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Top Secret pits American rock star Nick Rivers, played by Val Kilmer, against the dreaded East German High Command. I didn't know the East German High Command was dreaded. I've never really thought much about the East German High Command, but I guess according to Paramount, they are dreaded. It's a race against time as Nick teams up with Hilary Flamand, played by Lucy Gutteridge, to find her father before he can create the ultimate superweapon, the Polaris Mine. Along the way, Top Secret and I've lost my page, manages to do for war epics and Elvis films what Airplane did for disaster movies. I think that kind of covers it, actually, when I, I think about what this movie is, because in watching it, I mean, um, there's not a lot to it, to be honest. And, you know, I enjoy it, to be yes. sure, but there's not a lot to, to Top Secret. That's what I was, one of the things that I was thinking I was going to say is like, do you have any trepidation about covering this movie? Because I know that Roger Ebert notoriously struggled to cover the Naked Gun movies because he's kind of like, I mean, what, what more is there to say then? It has good jokes. The jokes are funny. You should go see it because it has funny jokes because, you know, you don't want to just sit there in the review and describe the jokes, but there's not much more to go into. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But the thing that struck me as I'm watching it is when is this movie supposed to take place? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, you know, if you, if I, before I watched it for this podcast, I would have said it was a World War II movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought it was Nazis versus, you know, uh, you know, fifties rockers, maybe for some reason, maybe a little out of time there, obviously forties to fifties, but you know, you've got Bobby Soxers in here. You've got early sixties beach music. You've got references to Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter and satellite television. <laughs> and you have a French resistance force going up against the, the East Germans. When did that happen ever in history? I don't think that's a thing. And, and so it's uh, really kind of confusing. And there's no actual um, overt Nazi imagery in it. I mean, they are clearly supposed to be Nazis, but they don't wear swastikas or anything like that. No, that's something I definitely noticed when I was watching it again is I was looking at the uniforms that they wear in the German headquarters and they're definitely intending a, a feel of Nazism, but no, there's nothing about that, which, you know, I, that's why I was like, why is I thinking this is a World War II movie? But then everything is so mixed up in it. And I don't know if that was on purpose on the part of uh, the Zuckers and Abram, but 
it's really as you if you really think about it which is probably something you shouldn't do too much about top secret um it's weird it's not it doesn't make sense when this movie takes place it's all over the place uh as i told you yesterday when we were talking about uh getting to record this i did sit and listen to their commentary and they were recounting stories about people coming up to them and saying um oh you made this great reference to such and such and they're just like i don't know <laughs> but they, like they just they just did what they thought was funny so it's it's it is interesting to imagine because this like the time period the movie is set in just doesn't doesn't come up at all. I, as far as I know, they they haven't thought about it to this day. It is it is just sort of. It's funny because it is like one of those things the movie doesn't actually need to go into. Like it functions fine without it. If you want to sit and think about it, it is something that they don't cover, and it is very strange. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's certainly not necessary for the comedy comedy to work. No, absolutely not. And I think, you know, they talk a bit about how they were trying to mix up an Elvis film with a, a World War II kind of like great escape kind of story. Um, obviously, there's a Blue Lagoon story in line, and we'll talk more about that later on. Um, but I guess, you know, like I said, there's there's not a lot to Top Secret. So I guess when they pulled in all these various things from different directions, they had to mix it all up. Otherwise, they would have got stuck with just a small amount of work, to things to deal with, the amount of research, references to work with. Uh, they do say on the commentary that um, what they would do is that they would sit and they would watch a bunch of the kinds of movies that they thought that they were going to reference or parody, and um, that it was a very specific type of movie that sort of had a self-seriousness about it. If the movie had any sort of tongue-in-cheek or its own sort of sense of comedy, then they felt like it just didn't, tended to not work. But I, I believe what they were saying is something to the effect of, they would see a scene and then they would riff on that scene and they would come up with a joke that they thought was funny, but it would just be self-contained. And then at some point later in the process, they would have all these scenes and they would actually try and start attaching those scenes into a narrative. Which is um, always the best way to make a movie is, to, <laughs> you know, as, as we'll probably learn with the, uh, the, the uh, Zack Snyder cut of Justice League that, you know, stitching they, things together makes great sense. <laughs> Although they did note that um, the fourth screenwriter, which doesn't, I had totally forgotten. I had actually watched this um, a couple weeks just by coincidence, watched it for the first time in years a couple weeks before you asked me to do this. And I had totally forgotten that there was a fourth writer. And they said the fourth writer, Marty Burke, he was specifically brought in to help give it a plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least somebody had to do that. You know, it's definitely not going to be of the three. Uh, so let's talk a bit about, you know, obviously this is Kilmer cast. So let's talk a bit about Val Kilmer in this film. Uh, plays Nick Rivers, a rock star who is uh, invited by the East Germans to perform in some sort of musical festival. There's not a whole lot to that. Uh, it kind of falls by the wayside after his performance. Uh, there's no meaning behind that festival. But, you know, what I thought was interesting here is that he, he I mean, he's funny. He's, he's absolutely mm -hmm. funny. He's charming, effortlessly cool, a beautiful man. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, mm -hmm but he plays a straight man in this movie. He, mm -hmm. is, he is not really the comic force in this film. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, you know, and that was, I started to think about, you know, the Zuckers and Abrams' other big star, Leslie Nielsen, the mm -hmm. same thing. Leslie Nielsen is not the funniest part of the Naked Gun films. Mm -hmm. And yet we all remember Leslie Nielsen as being hilarious. And mm -hmm. the same thing here. I always think of, you know, Val Kilmer as being really funny. I mean, obviously, Real Genius is, he's hilarious and, and Real Genius, but he doesn't do that much quote-unquote comedy in this movie. I mean, it's, it's sort of both ways, because I, th I think when the audience watches a movie like this, they understand that the actor's job is to play it straight, and so that um, when he plays it straight and he does a good job of it and he makes it look like he, it still relies on his abilities of... of comic timing and things like that. So he's still, he, he is still funny in this movie, but I get, I do also understand what you mean when you say he's playing it um, dramatically and that's what makes it funny. Um, but I mean, you know, the timing of the line, the, 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 I remember when I was a teenager and I saw this movie for the first time, the line that just killed me was when he's in the jail cell and he's got the 20 on the wall and he's like, I've been here almost 20 minutes already. <laughs> that's, that's great. I mean, his, his delivery of some of these lines in this movie is just, spot on 
that scene is nonstop uh, with the with his um, I think manager or agent um, mm-hmm. and the anal intruder. I mean, he they just that that does that does not stop. It just keeps hitting joke after joke after joke. I think I mean obviously that's what's great about this uh, Zucker and Abram film, but that scene alone was brilliant. Um, I was surprised because on the commentary, they were kind of down on the pacing of the movie. They were kind of like, this goes on and on. I just think a lot of the jokes that they are picking on, like the um, the priest who's like <laughs> taking him to the electric chair and he's reading the pig Latin and all this nonsense. I mean, I think the reading of the nonsense is funny. And then of mm-hmm. course the punchline to the joke is also funny. And so, I mean, I don't feel like the movie has pacing problems. Uh, they seem to think so. No. Um, I was also going to mention, I assume you're also going to mention it, Top Secret was Val Kilmer's acting, feature acting debut. He was never in a movie before this one. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I was, uh, I've listened to the commentary as well, and they mentioned that they just cast him from an audition date. You know, the only reason I, they cast him, according to directors, was that he wasn't the stereotypical pretty blonde. Uh, mm-hmm. that he seemed to be different. And obviously a part of that also was the fact that he had musical ability because he had done musical stuff in school. Um, I mean, Music is such a huge part of this film. It's almost a musical. There's mm-hmm. so many musical numbers. At one point, I think it's three in a row, that uh, three full songs in a row that they do uh, mm-hmm. when he's doing the actual East German film, uh, music festival. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is that they're not all funny. Mm-hmm. Tutti Frutti is a pretty straightforward performance of music. Um, yeah, there's a couple of gags in there uh, where you know he's dancing um, you know, with the, the women in the room. Um, but for the most part, Tutti Frutti is just a musical performance and it's enjoyable. Yeah, it's really, he's really good. I mean, uh, watching him dance and walk on the tables and stuff. I mean, that's like uh, pretty straightforward musical kind of entertainment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, some of the, I mean, my favorite musical performance in, I mean, aside from Skeet Shooting, which I think is a great song. It's, <laughs> it, I really, for a long time, I thought it was a Weird Al song. I thought that he was behind that. And I think part of it is the beach culture and all that. I, I think it really tied into the, what Weird Al was at the time. Um, and so I, I just gave him the credit. Um, but uh, the Spend the, de- the Night With Me, I think it was Spend the Night With Me, uh, where he tries to kill himself several times on stage. <laughs> I mean, that was perfect. That I mean, that was the comedy I'm looking for from a movie like this when he puts his head in the oven, he's trying to hang himself. He's got these doo-wop singers trying to stop him. He plays that role so well that, you know, even though it's ridiculous, he is, it feels like that's what it should be. That's what, that's what a performance of a, a star who is that emoting that much into his music would do on stage. And he's pushing it to that, that, you know, nth level. And uh, I will point out, because you mentioned it, I mean, I figure you might know this also, but Weird Al has consistently cited Top Secret as his favorite comedy movie of all time. So I think that um, the One More Minute video where he has the doo-wop singers, and then he did a song that was also Beach Boys themed about guns on Off the Deep End. I think those are intentional references back to Top Secret. I mean, it makes sense, you know, that they would have that kind of back and forth and, you know, top secret, I think has influenced so many of the best comedians because it it's, you know, everybody knows the naked gun, but top secret was really where that an airplane was where these guys were at the top of their powers and just able to just boom, 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 joke, 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 silly, silly, ridiculous and get away with it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can tell in the later works by David Zucker that it didn't work the same way. The scary movie three, four and five, um, this time they knew what they were doing and they were all working together towards the same common goal and had the best casts available to do it. I think um, it was a different time for that. I might be, I might be in an odd, uh, an odd man out here. I did. I do actually still really like uh, scary movie three, which I think is probably the last like purely in the style of Zucker Abrams Zucker. Cause I always forget about um, like, Walk Hard and Popstar are clearly evolutions of the same kind of thing, but they're mm-hmm. not quite, they're not quite as um, cartoonish, I guess. They're a little yeah. bit, they're, they're like a modern evolution of the same form. But um, yeah, I, I still think that Scary Movie 3 is probably the last good straight spoof movie that was ever made. I tried to watch part of 4 and I only made it like 10 minutes. So I have to, I will agree with you on 4 and probably 5 because I didn't watch any of 5, but 3 still makes me laugh a lot. Yeah, four and five are pretty dismal. I mean, I, I mean, and that's the point when we got in. I mean, I, I could have my timing wrong, but is that the time when we got into epic movie and like all those terrible Freelander? Um, I can't remember the other guy's name. Where they just 
we're just throwing piles of references essentially into a movie. I think that's a little, that's like between Scary Movie 3 and Scary Movie 4. It's like somewhere in there where they, uh, uh, Seltzer and Friedberg. That's That's Seltzer and Friedberg. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they they killed it. <laughs> like, not killed in a good way. They just killed the idea of Spielberg. And that's what really I struggle with, is because I don't see a reason why a movie like this can't be popular. Um, I mean, I watched it half expecting, you know, after watching, not watching it for a long time, I expected to run into jokes that I thought were outdated or relied on mindsets that aren't, you know, acceptable nowadays. Um, and I didn't really run into a whole lot of that in Top Secret. I, I don't. I don't think there was bit, a lot. Pretty. It's pretty. It, most of it still holds up pretty well. I mean, I think. Uh, I would say that um, in terms of uh, animals mounting people, I think trading places is probably a much worse <laughs> category than Top Secret. I mean, Top Secret is pretty uh, gentle about it, and then um, there's like one or two other things. But for the most part, I mean, the, both. I mean, I think airplane airplane has nudity in it, so that's one thing. But it's like, for the most part, um, airplane and Top Secret are pretty family friendly. Yeah, Top Secret has one small piece of nudity, and I'll get to that a little later on. And <laughs> and of course, it has the anal intruder joke. That's probably the most extreme the movie gets. But yeah, and you have to read to be able to really understand that, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, Man, I had a thought and that just went away. It was something you were talking about before, but uh, maybe I'll... It'll come back up. But, you know, um, I think part of what uh, has killed, or at least has subdued the spoof genre, is the uh, studio's reliance on foreign uh, you know, markets to pay for films. Because so much of this movie is about wordplay. I <laughs> mean, wordplay is some of the biggest and funniest portions of this film. I laugh every single time when Hillary says, I know a little German, he's <laughs> sitting over there. I, <laughs> I laugh every time. I mean, it, it's such a stupid joke, but it is hilarious. And I love what I, I, I'm, he's sitting over there and he's just, hi. And I'm like, that is, but like that, does that joke play outside of, you know, English? You know, I don't know. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is that so much of this is about, you know, being silly with the words they're using and getting laughs out of that is not going to translate all the time. I have two thoughts about this. First of all, that did remind me what I was going to say. I think one of the major factors in uh, spoof movies maybe falling off is that um, do we have... Because I, I like when I was a kid, I really loved these movies. When I was in junior high and high school, I mean, these were my bread and butter. And so I would think about what what kind of one of these movies I would make. And I sort of one of the things I ran into is I sort of struggled to figure out what is the thing that is consistent enough to riff off of. Like what 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 like the the way our uh, genre filmmaking has gone is sort of. Um, it has become more splintered and a little bit more obscure. So, um, I mean, obviously superheroes, but then they did a superhero movie and I don't know if it was any good. It was not. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the, it's like, that's, that's one of the big things that comes to mind is like, what does the audience know well enough to understand? Because it's like you watch these movies and part of it is just understanding what the straight version of it would be. And then, laughing at the left turns that the parody makes. Um, And then um, you were talking about um, what you would, you had been saying, what was your theory? That um, because it's so heavy in wordplay that that doesn't translate. Uh, I did review a movie for DVD talk once. It was a French movie and I basically liked it. But one of the things that I found interesting is that they talked a lot. I I forget where I read about this. It must've been maybe on the disc somewhere or somehow I learned about it. But basically the reason that the movie hadn't been released over here before is because they were like, the movie is not, you can't translate it. Like the jokes that are, they do in French rely on them being in French in a way that we just can't, there's no way to equivocate them. So we can translate the movie and you can watch it and maybe enjoy it, but you're never going to enjoy it like you would if you were a French person. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, and now that you mentioned French, I'm thinking of the French resistance force escargot, déjà vu, chocolat mousse. I mean, those, do those translate if you take them now from 
French to English now to another language, do they have that connection? And I don't know if they do. Um, I think it would be really hard to understand that. Do, um, you know, say Chinese markets understand that deja vu means, you know, that when he says, do I know you're from somewhere? <laughs> like that, that might not play. And that's a real problem because that's a, that's a long scene <laughs> where they go. I wonder, over I wonder if you could, if you looked at the movies like date movie and stuff or the evolution of the spoof movie, I wonder if you would see a, 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 a move away from wordplay to more visual gags and stuff that aren't going to have to be reinterpreted for another language. Hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that, you know, I don't, I don't know if anybody's doing that right now. <laughs> and that's the problem. I, I mean, I, I think I'd love to see somebody try. I think there can be, I don't think this is something you couldn't do. I think, you know, although like you mentioned, pop star, you know, that's got some of that DNA, uh, but it's more, I think it's more plot heavy than mm -hmm. uh, a film like this, um, especially if you consider how long pop star is. Um, but um, it is pretty long, right? Or does it just feel long? No, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> pop star is the rare short Jedi Apatow movie. It's like oh, Ace. Okay. It's walk, walk Hard is two hours. It but. feels like it has a lot of plot to it. <laughs> pop star has a lot of plot going on from when, you know, going through their childhood, going into their, you know, the breakup and Connor Friel's career. Maybe they just, they just fit so much into that short space that it feels like a longer movie. But I do, I do think about Popstar and I can't think of very many, there's no real wordplay jokes. It's, it's more straightforward kind of modern comedy. And I was also going to think like maybe the other, the other interpretation of this that we have now is, um, Tim and Eric stuff that's like just totally weird mm. where it's like it is a parody and then it's also just so absurd on the face of it that you don't necessarily need to be parodying anything in particular for the audience to understand that it's just out there. Yeah, any surrealist comedy, Eric Andre, stuff like that, I think can play across, you know, different languages and not have a real problem because it's just it's surreal. It's about just being weird and funny in the same time. Um, so you know, uh, we talked about Val Kilmer in this film, and I think he's fantastic in this film. Part of his, you know, his charm is part of the biggest part of this film's enjoyment. Um, but he's got a great cast. I mean, you know, Peter Cushing as the the bookstore um, uh, you know, operator, Michael Goh as the, um, you know, as the scientist, uh, Billy, <laughs> Billy Mitchell as the manager, I think steals so many scenes from his reactions to Val Kilmer. Um, I mean, that setup in that again i'll go back to that jail cell scene his setup talking about i talked to the german consul i talked to he's like i just can't bring my wife to orgasm i mean it's just a perfectly delivered setup and joke and he that, that scene on the train when he's talking to uh to val and you know trying to keep him out of trouble he is it's a perfectly like uh you know selfless job because no you're not going to get the laughs on your own work, you're just working off of somebody else and working off everything else in the movie. And I think he does a great job with that. I love his, uh, the fake voiceover joke where he's in the restaurant <laughs> and he's got the little, little loudspeaker. That's a, that's a perfectly executed joke as well. And that's another example of, um, you know, the Zazz, you know, style where they actually play with the concepts of film. You know, mm -hmm. they, they mess with all, all the things and then we could talk again about, well, we haven't talked much about it, but the, the bookstore scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, that scene, you know, nowadays it doesn't seem quite as amazing because, you know, you, the things you can do with film and special effects and everything like that, but it is so well made to do a scene backwards like that. And it just, it, it makes me laugh every time watching, you know, the, the, the dust go back on the book, the catching of the book. They actually said that the reason, one of the other reasons why they cast uh, Kilmer is because he was an athlete. Mm -hmm. And he could make that catch and make it seem like he was throwing it instead of catching the book. And mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> I just love that they left the dog in at the end. Like, the, most, the most amazing thing about that sequence, actually, in terms of how much craft went into the jokes in this movie, is that's not even the most complicated scene in the movie. I have to give that to the underwater bar fight, which is even, which is just like, I mean, watching that now, the effort they went to do this completely absurd gag is just really remarkable. I mean, the whole sequence is very funny and it's just executed perfectly. And it's just like, it's so surreal to watch it that it's like you can't even imagine the amount of work that one actually went into making it. I was hoping that on the commentary, they would talk more about how it actually happened because 
you watch, I mean, obviously some things like the chips on the cards are all, are glued to the table and all that, but the hat, how does the hat not float away? I don't understand that. How does he pop a collar underwater? I mean, like, I, I mean just the effort of having to film underwater like that is, I mean, they're on the bottom, on the ground. They're not floating. Like, yeah. how, how did they do that? I love an oral history of just that scene. And, you know, like, just tell me more about what happened crashing through a window like that and like perfectly moved. I just, and I have to say that, the um the uh, I don't know what you want to call her, but the woman at the bar, her bye bye is ingrained in my brain. I I can hear I can just think and I hear it perfectly every time in my head. It's hilarious, ridiculous. Bye bye. You know, like, I love that scene. On that exact note, I mean, you were talking about the cast, and so the line reading that I will never get out of my head is uh, souvenirs, novelties. <laughs> Party tricks and Sierra's, uh, who is also a pretty popular character actor that I see in a lot of things, and uh, yeah, he's a lot of fun playing that role. Yeah, everybody was making really good choices when making this film. That again, yeah, I absolutely agree. Novelty tricks. I, it's just like it's it's perfect. It's just made for this movie, and it makes perfect sense, even though it's just ridiculous. I don't know what it has to do with anything. It's not an accent I've ever heard before. I just want to hear more of it. <laughs> I do. I am a. I am a huge fan of Airplane. I'm a huge fan of the Naked Gun movies. I do think that Top Secret, uh, even though, as you you apparently mentioned, uh, that it was not as successful as the other ones, I do think Top Secret is in in a weird way their strange masterpiece. Like it's just the idea of combining Elvis movies with World War II movies is so bizarre. And then it has the jokes like the underwater bar fight, which is has nothing to do with either of those genres. It's just a complete tangent in the middle of the movie. And they went to all this effort to put it together. And it's so good. I mean, I, I just, I have a lot of admiration for Top Secret in general. Oh, I, I absolutely do. And we haven't even talked about uh, Christopher Villers as Nigel. I mean, um, I don't know if, you're, <laughs> if you've watched Blue Lagoon, um, but, um, you know, the, the parody of Blue Lagoon they're doing with Hillary and Nigel is, I say, he is, you know, it's a one note role for the most part. It, he's playing just, you know, a villainous cad and, you know, um, but it's so good. <laughs> like he, when he comes out all oiled up and like just ridiculous. Like why is he with the French resistance in East Germany? It doesn't make any sense. But throw it all together. I don't care. Give me more of that because you know I want something that I can just be like, yeah, why not? It's there because it's funny. And you know he is that good. And I don't think he's done. I mean he's worked consistently. He has been in TV and movies ever since then and still to this day and i thank god because he's so good i'm glad somebody so talented is working like that um but i don't think he's ever done anything this known and i feel bad for that like because it had to be very early on in his career and he's just like hit that peak and just was like okay now i'll just do my thing <laughs> one thing that i thought um years ago when i watched it uh or one of the last times i watched it i wondered if uh um, the South Park guys were also fans of this movie because I feel like there there is a character that is modeled after this character in the movie in the bigger, longer, and uncut. I feel like that guy he isn't he has the curly blonde hair and everything. And I just thought, is this an intentional reference to Top Secret? Um, and I don't have any I don't have any insight into that. But. No, I'll have to do some research and find out. But I I wouldn't doubt it. I mean. I have to think that Top Secret is anybody who was alive in the eighties um, and you know is an interesting comedy. Top Secret has to be right there. I mean, it was uh, nominated for the top 100 AFI comedies. It didn't make it somehow. I don't, I don't believe it made it, um, which I have a hard time understanding how, because, you know, there's so much about it that it's hilarious. Um, it's good for Airplane. Yeah, I guess, you know, um, that's uh, interesting. You mentioned Airplane. I was shocked when I was looking that how short Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams' career was as far as making films goes. You know, they didn't really make, they, they did some other stuff like First Night and all that, but making comedies like this, it was not that long a career for them. And mm -hmm. I wonder why that is because, I mean, Naked Gun, everybody loves them. I mean, that's not a movie that people don't enjoy. And I'm pretty sure they did relatively well at the box office and they couldn't have cost that much. It sounds like, I mean, my impression is that uh, ultimately David and Jerry wanted to do different things because David, David continued making spoof movies or spoof adjacent movies. Um, and I don't know, I mean, maybe they just became unpopular because it's like, uh, I don't know how expensive 
the scary movies were. I mean, there was a big gap between three and four. Three was like the big hit, and then they didn't follow up that quickly, is my recollection. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, but And then Jerry, I mean, Jerry's last movie I thought was good, which was, as far as I know, Rat Race. I enjoyed Rat Race a lot. Rat Race is... It's pretty good. What was you saying? Sorry, what were you saying? That's pretty good, Rat Race. Yeah, yeah. Um, But then, I mean, he he did Ghost and stuff like that, so he clearly wanted to stretch his wings a little bit. I remember uh, when I was a teenager and I was so in love with his movies and then noticing that he had produced uh, My Best Friend's Wedding, which I was like, huh. But uh, which is also yeah. a good movie, but nothing like these spoof movies. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I know that uh, Will Harris of uh, the AV Club, he's like writing a book on their career. So um, he worked with them directly. So maybe we'll find out more answers when that comes out. Yeah, I guess there's definitely something to be said to getting out while you're on top. You know, you make Airplane, Top, you know, Top Secret. You make the three Naked Guns. Although I don't know if they were involved in the third one as much. Um, but uh, you get out on top, and then you go do what you want to do. I mean, that's it's not a bad way to do your do your life for sure. If you have some interest outside of comedy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'd like to you know hear a bit about you know Top Secret from the man himself, um, and you know we can do that uh, with a reading from the Book of Val. It's time for a reading from the Book of Val. So this is from uh, Val Kilmer's new memoir, um, Your Huckleberry. Um, oddly enough, you know, and I've read a bunch of the beginning of the book at this point, and he doesn't talk a lot about the movies. <laughs> he, they kind of, they are the chapter titles for the most part, um, but he kind of uses an intro into por- periods of his life and then gets out of them. But he did talk a bit about Top Secret. So from Val Kilmer. Top Secret continued the Kentucky Fried movie and airplane lineage by settling, setting its story in East Germany, where Nick Rivers, a pretty boy Ricky Nelson rocker, saves the day. I got to play Nick. That meant I got to sing and play guitar. Back in Chatsworth, when high school musicals were all the rage and Mayor Winningham was enjoying rave reviews for her rendition of The Sound of Music, I was not inclined to follow in her footsteps. I could sing, but didn't see singing as my strength. Yes, I love singing and was fanatical for raucous rock and roll and hot-blooded rhythm and blues. When it comes to theater, give me the serious roles. Give me the classics. I spent four months learning the guitar to the point where my fingers were raw. I was hardly Eric Clapton, but I wasn't terrible. But because the writers, directors trafficked in perversity, on the first day of shooting, they said I should just pretend to play the guitar. Just strum it lightly. Wait a minute, I said. Four months and ten raw fingers later, and you don't want me to play it? They smiled. They had simply wanted to see my expression when I learned that my work would be in vain. And that's a reading from the Book of Val. I mean, that's, that definitely says uh, Zuckers and Abrams to me, to mess with uh, Val Kilmer that way. And I could see him easily uh, you know, getting a little upset about that because uh, he's the kind of guy who seems to throw himself into his role as heart and soul. It's funny that they, they do mention that on the commentary. They're like, that's the thing he always brings up in interviews. But they did praise his, his dedication in general to learning the choreography, you know, singing the songs and all this stuff. And he's, I mean, again, he's very good at all of that. And um, I, he does give a really great uh, straight man performance in it. I think he's really fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, you hear about uh, some of these veteran actors who are known for serious roles who are going who they the zucker abrams zucker team you know were trying to convert like they converted lord Lloyd bridges or uh leslie nielsen and people just being nervous about it and it's sort of interesting that this was his first movie role because he had nothing else to compare it to yeah i i wonder if he was you know and he does talk a little bit about this being nervous about being typecast at that point because you know dr- driving right into that as first ma- major role and then following up a real genius I mean, it definitely doesn't seem, if you look at his history before films, when he was a serious Juilliard actor, it doesn't seem like what he was looking to do, and then he somehow ended up in there. And I think you can see, maybe that's why he pulled away from comedy as he took off as a star. Because I had, yeah, I had, I had uh, Real Genius that slipped my mind. You're more of a Real Genius fan than I am. Absolutely. But uh, I had forgotten, because I was going to ask you, like, did he do any comedy between this and MacGruber because it feels like I, like I can't think of very many off the top of my head but Real Genius might be the only one yeah I don't uh, I'm looking in my head at the list I should pull the list up but um, yeah I don't believe there was a lot of comedy between Real Genius and MacGruber I think he really <laughs> dove into action star films and and really weird stuff you know like the uh, the island of Dr. Moreau and, and all those that he you know mm-hmm. tried to be a, a movie star um, and 
you know, I don't, to some degrees it worked, to some degrees it didn't work. <laughs> so um, we're gonna take a look at some of the reviews that Top Secret got in our another secret uh, segment called Kills and Valleys. Come children, let's explore the kills and valleys. You get it, right? Kills and valleys. <laughs> so, um, you know, what I looked for was the uh, most positive review uh, of Top Secret and the least positive review of Top Secret. And they weren't too far apart from each other. Uh, honestly, this film was really well received from critics. Um, so the, my most positive review I could find was from Roger Ebert for the Chicago Sun-Times. He said, uh, I have a friend who claims he only laughed real loud on five occasions during Top Secret. I laughed that much in the first 10 minutes. It all depends on your sense of humor. My friend claims that I have a corn sense of humor because my origins deep in central Illinois. I admit that is true. As a Gemini, however, I contain multitudes. I have also a highly sophisticated, sharply intellectual sense of humor. Get me in the right mood and I can laugh all over the map. That's why I like Top Secret. Instead of a plot, it has a funny young actor named Val Kilmer as the hero, a 1950s style American rock and roller who is sent on a concert tour behind the Iron Curtain and manages to reduce East Germany to shambles while never missing a word of Tutti Frutti. He never even stumbles during a wop a loop a wop bam boom <laughs> Now, um, I can see this being a Roger, uh, Roger Ebert film uh, that he would like. And like you said before, you know, that, um, you know, it's odd they didn't like The Naked Gun because a lot of the same feel is there. But, uh, no, but I he, guess... Well, sorry, I, I'm, if I gave off that impression, it was wrong. Uh, he loved, he enjoyed The Naked Gun plenty, but he was just talking about how, how hard it is to write about the movie because all you want to do is describe the jokes. The, oh, movie, okay. the movie is funny, um, so what do you fill a column with? And actually, in all three of his reviews of The Naked Gun movies, he referenced the same joke from Top Secret. And on the third time, he even said... Um, on the, when he was reviewing the third movie, he was like, I went back and read the first two and I, I realized for the first time that I recounted the same joke in the first two. And then he explains the joke and then he says, clever readers will notice I've just done it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it definitely feels like the kind of movie, it's smart, but stupid. It's ridiculous. I, it's just perfect in my opinion, um, mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, the least, uh, you know, um, accepting review was from Richard Schickel of Time. And he said, uh, top secrets writers, directors, Jim Abrams, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker, the team irresponsible for Airplane four years ago, will go to any lengths to break down the resistance of the audience. They sprinkle a generous supply of topical gags and adolescent sex jokes over a dizzying succession of generic spoofs. The dictum that less is more means nothing here. Pace and prof... Uh, the word I don't know, are everything. This time, though, the creative group has neglected to build to the kind of giddy everything plus the kitchen sink climax that made Airplane such a memorable, memorable exercise in anarchy. Top Secret plays more like a pillow fight in a summer camp cabin, an agreeable way to pass the time after lights out, but one that just peters out when everyone gets tired of breaking the rules. Um, I, you know, I do understand that um, the idea that this doesn't have a big ending to it. It really, I was kind of sh shocked when it ended, that mm -hmm. that was it. I uh, mean, yeah, the, air, the air, airplane has the whole landing the airplane, which is a very propulsive conclusion. And Top Secret does, it, I mean, the underwater bar fight is a great joke and it's such an elaborate joke, but I don't know that you watch it and you think, oh, I'm watching the climax of this movie. Um, then there's the one scene afterward where they arrive at the uh, airplane and that's it. I mean, I do think the movie is funny enough that it doesn't really matter, but uh, it definitely sort of just ends. Yeah, that, it was it was kind of it was very surprising because when the the end came up, I was like, "Is that really the end? There's got to be a little more to this, right?" And it's, no, that's it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I watched it. Although there is the uh, the credit sort of scene where they mm -hmm. have uh, Kilmer and his backup singers singing underneath the credits, but that's just a repeat of in the song before. There's no, no real jokes. They have there. all their uh, credit jokes. The Zucker Abram Zucker <laughs> credit jokes throughout. Yeah, I don't know if that makes up for you know, just uh, ending the film like that, though. Um, although I did notice, um, I guess because I was paying attention to the fact that the film kind of just ended, is there's a little gag in the background at the plane scene where they're throwing darts at the bullseye on the plane, which I never noticed before. It just kind of slides in the background there because they're doing the foreground uh, Wizard of Oz joke. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, I, the layers <laughs> of jokes sometimes amazes me with those films. Um, so... Beyond those, I wanted to take a look, uh, I mean, at Amazon reviews because sometimes they're, you know, an art form into themselves. And uh, on, nobody really had a problem with Kilmer's performance here. Um, they, you know, it was pretty unanimous that they loved him. 
Uh, but there was one thing that people complained about. You want to take a guess at what that was, Tyler? Hmm. No, I don't know. I have no idea. Okay, well, here I'll tell you. So Live in the Dream on Amazon wrote, Unfortunately, this is one of a handful of 80s movies that are rated PG, but that you would not want your ch children watching. We watched about a half hour and had to shut it off after scenes with overpronounced male genitals and female chest-up nudity from the front, not a profile view. We had five children eight and under with us, and we were shocked that a PG movie had such overt sexual content. <laughs> I do remember distinctly, I was a kid and I was watching Back to the Future for the first time and I kept swearing constantly. And I remember being so paranoid that uh, my parents were going to make me turn it off, but they did not. So uh, I felt good about that. Yeah, and um, Vern from Amazon also said, again, the same problem. The ballet scene should have been R-rated. <laughs> the movie had too many gags about homosexual acts. How will you feel trying to explain to your 11-year-old something that you wish you didn't understand yourself? <laughs> I don't know why everybody had such a problem with the ballet scene. I get it that it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's got sexual overtones, but it's really sillier than anything else. Well, so I feel like that guy said all I needed to know in that review. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got a definite point of view that uh, he's going to find a lot of problems with a lot of things, for sure. Um, he, he probably shouldn't be enjoying mainstream comedies. It's not really his cup of tea. <laughs> so, um, you know, what I want to try now uh, is a segment. With or without Val. So could, does Val Kilmer make or break this movie? Could you make this movie without Val Kilmer? Um, I mean, obviously at the time, you know, you can make it now. Obviously, people remake things all the time now. But is Val Kilmer integral to this film? I, as much as I like his performance in it, I do have to say no. I think there are plenty of people who could have done as good of a job as he does. I do think that doesn't take away anything from how good of a job he does. But it is a pretty straightforward role. I mean, there are people who are good at this kind of comedy. And, uh, I can't imagine somebody else doing it. I don't have anyone pictured in my head. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go back in time and recast the movie. But uh, I do think this is not a particularly complex role that requires a specific person. I would argue uh, only because of the musical talent required. He did sing his own songs in every case, uh, as well as doing all the dancing, um, mm -hmm. which you know that is a special skill that not everybody has. And to combine that with the ability to do the comedy. That's a rarity. You're not going to find a lot of that. Uh, and I'm trying to think back to the 80s who had that kind of ability. I mean, admittedly, you could just dub the songs. Mm -hmm. You could just have somebody else sing and then sync them uh, to the actor. But there was an enjoyment to having him actually be the one singing it. He gave that expression, that actor expression to them to raise the level on them, especially like that, uh, are you, um, you know, spend the night with me tonight. Uh, I can't, that's not actually the title, but um, that, that expressing that despair over not having her, um, I think you needed somebody who could combine those two, those two talents. So in that case, I would say he is the only person I can think of that would do this part. The I, feel like, I guess what I, the way I would put it is that um, I could imagine them doing it with someone else, but it would be a risk. I can't, like, certainly the way the movie is now is the movie is great and um, you would be rolling the dice to cast somebody else. But I do, I, I don't think that there's any, basically I don't think there's anything in the role that uh, makes Val Kilmer necessary. I mean, he, he is the right person for the thing that the movie needs. But uh, I, I, I imagine that other people are capable. Yeah, I, I'm sure capable is is out there. <laughs> so we have one last segment um, to hit, and that is... Where does this film belong amongst the best of the best? So <laughs> it's a little unfair right now. <laughs> we have one film <laughs> to go mm -hmm. by. So, you know, and as we go through uh, KilmerCast, uh, mm -hmm. we'll be able to stack them up against each other. So... Uh, I think we know the answer, but where is Top Secret lie on the Kilmer list of films? Well, since this is the first episode, I mean, I won't get into it too much. I have seen a handful of Val Kilmer films. It feels like it's possible I'll be back on this podcast and see some that I haven't already seen. But uh, I mean, I do think this is when I think of Val Kilmer, I do think this is one of the movies that I think is among his best Um the audience can't see this because we're, I mean, we're, we're on Zoom right now, but uh, um, I, when I met Val Kilmer, I had him sign my copy of Top Secret. So um, uh, it's certainly a movie that I have a lot of affection for. Um, 
And I think he's very good in it. So I would certainly put it among his better movies. Yeah. As of right now, it is number one on the Kilmer Cash chart, as well as the bottom of the Kilmer Cash chart. So we'll see where it ends up in the end when we get through all these episodes. Uh, so that's all for this episode of KilmerCast. I'd like to thank you, Tyler, for taking this maiden voyage with me. And as we kick off this review of the Kilmer Canon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to being back for at least a couple more. Yes, I will definitely have you back for a couple more, if not more than that. Um, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Um, I thought about it and I can't really think of anything. I, I took a break last year from writing from DVD talk. I thought I was just going to be done with it, but, uh, then quarantine happened and I had nothing else, nothing better to do. So I have started writing reviews for DVD talk again. Um, so I guess if you want to uh, read some of those, you can go to DVD talk, talk and find them. Cool. Um, for me, I don't have anything personally to plug, but I would like to recommend that you check out Spotify and go uh, see my friend, singer-songwriter Jean Ann Garish, her most recent album, Rise Up and Other Musical Thoughts for These Times. If you like uh, Sarah Bareilles or Sarah McLaughlin, you'll definitely dig her stuff. Uh, she's really awesome, and so I hope you go check out her music. Uh, in the next episode, we'll be looking at a much more recent flick, The Super, from, from 2018. Uh, in the meanwhile, please email any thoughts, questions, comments to KilmerCast at gmail.com and follow the show on Twitter at KilmerCast. Uh, you can check out our show on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the regular spots. For myself and my guest, Tyler Foster, thanks for listening and remember to keep it Kilmer. Kilmer.